was good. A little bit of soul in that song. That was good. Hey, good morning. It's great to see you today. And if you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. And we're going to continue our series this morning in, in the book of John called The Word Made Flesh. And we're going to be in John chapter 2 today. So if you've got your Bible, that's where we'll be reading out of in, in just a minute. But I want to begin with, with kind of a, an experiment, a, kind of a chance for some, some crowd participation and so, so here's, here, here it is, right? I want you to think of somebody, think of someone that you love. Think of somebody that you, now if you're sitting by your spouse, this would be a good chance to, you, you might want to squeeze their hand right now. Um, if you're sitting by a complete stranger and you want to weird them out, just turn and give them a real, really awkward smile or something, you know, like, um, think of someone that you love. And then here's the second part. Here's the second part. What do you love about them? What is it about them that you, that you love? And this could, this could be a spouse, this could be a friend, it could be a child, uh, somebody that you love, and then what do you love about them? So like get maybe that, that image in your head or that list of things in, in your head. And so for me, obviously, uh, for this to not be awkward, uh, I'm going to choose Brianna, and uh, she's my wife. And so if you ask me, like, what do you love about Brianna? And I began to sort of give you the standard list of things. I, you know, I love, I mean, she's beautiful. She is a great mom to our kids. She's intelligent, right? And I kind of listed the things you would expect. And then I said, but you know what? One of the things I really love about her, she has this beautiful long blonde hair. And she's got these bright blue eyes, just piercing blue eyes, and she loves horror movies. We just sit and watch horror movies for hours, and she also, she, you might not know that she's a giant fan of cage fighting, um, <laughs> and, and if you know Brianna, right, apart from the first few things about her being beautiful and a great mom and all that, you might be like, bro, that's somebody else. <laughs> that's, not your, <laughs> that's not your wife. Like, she don't like cage fighting, and she doesn't have blonde hair, right? And Pastor, Pastor Rod and his wife, they're not here this week, so I'm going to talk about them. Um, but so if you did that same thing to, to Pastor Rod and his wife, Cindy, if you went up to Cindy and said, Cindy, what do you love about Rod? And she gave you the list of like, he's a great father, he's a great husband, he's a great leader, a great preacher. And, and then she said, but you know what? You may not know this about Rod. He, he went to Mississippi State University. Um, he played football. He's, he's over six foot tall. He wears the number four, and he is the starting quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, right? That's what I love about Rod, right there. He gives God the glory, even right there. You can be like, Cindy, I'm pretty sure that's Dak Prescott. Like, that's not Rod, right? That would be really weird, right? It, and so the reality that all of us know, this is something that all of us just, just sort of just assume this is just true, right? Um, in order to love someone, you must know them. We, we all know, in order to really love somebody, you have to know them. Not exhaustively, but accurately. In order to love somebody, you have to know them. Not exhaustively. I once heard a Bible scholar say that he, he thinks about the Bible the way he thinks about his wife. And then he said, uh, I love it deeply, but I would not pretend to entirely understand it. Um, it so you don't have to have exhaustive knowledge to love somebody. But you do have to have accurate knowledge, right? You have to know them. And so the next question I want to ask today is, is this. How well 
Do you know Jesus? How well do you know Jesus? This, this person that as Christians we would say that we worship, that we love, how well do you know him? Uh, he's the most important person who has ever lived. These are just a few different pictures of Jesus um, over the years. We'll just sort of cycle through them. Everybody seems to have a different image of Jesus. Um, this last one, that's a painting I purchased this week, if you don't know. Um, <laughs> we don't know what he looked like. We can't give you a picture of his, his haircut, or, 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 but, but, but we're called to know this person, this person, Jesus. Uh, and yet, Mark Twain has this great quote where he says, God made man in his image, and then man returned the favor. That we tend, when we go to look for Jesus, we tend to see a guy who looks and thinks uh, and believes and feels kind of like us. And we remake God in our own image. There's a great Bible scholar, a guy by the name of George Tyrell, and he talks about the well of history, the deep well of history. And he says even Bible scholars, when they go looking for Jesus, it's as if they're peering down through the centuries into this deep, dark well. And at the bottom of the well, in the, in the water, they see a reflection of their own face. And they say, there he is. That's Jesus. Looks kind of like me. Blonde hair, blue eyes, right? Thinks kind of like me. Probably hates the same people I hate. You know, how convenient, right? And so that's my question. How well do we know Jesus? Because in order to love somebody, you have to know them. You have to know them. And that's why this passage today, I think, is so crucial. I, I love it. I told somebody this morning, this might be my favorite passage. I can't believe Rod actually assigned it to me uh, in the whole New Testament. And I love it for one thing. I love it because it's weird, right? Which is probably not a surprise to most of you. What that, that's one of the things I like. But it gives us a picture of who Jesus is, what he has come to do, or what he's come to give, and then how we can receive it. And so whether you've been a Christian for years, or whether you're just sort of exploring the faith, like this passage is crucial because it addresses the most important question in the world, and that is, who is Jesus? What is he really like. And so we're going to read this passage together. John chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, follow along with me or you can read the same words up on the screen. It says this, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it 
to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, the bridegroom, and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. That last line, this is the first of the signs. One of the things that's unique about John's gospel is it it has miracles in it, but it doesn't use the Greek word that we usually use for miracles. It uses this other word, and the word is simeon, sign. And so one of the things that's, that's true of the whole gospel is that John points to Jesus via signs. And, and it's in some ways very different than the other Gospels. There are no parables in John. One scholar said the reason is because the whole Gospel is a parable. It is rich with symbolism and imagery. And the thing about a sign, whether we're talking about a sign that you would see on the highway or a sign that you would see in this passage, is the purpose of a sign is always to point to something other than itself. It's meant to like direct your vision to something else. And so I've used this analogy before. If you see a crosswalk sign by the side of the road, it has that little crosswalk on it. But you would never like try to climb up onto the sign and walk across the little crosswalk on the sign. That would be weird. You, you look around you and, you, oh, there's a, there's a crosswalk. The sign is something that's pointing to something other than itself. And the thing that this sign is pointing to is the thing we mentioned already. Who Jesus really is. Who he is. So we're going to look at three things today. First, who he came to be, what he came to give, and how we can receive it. We'll start with the first one and and probably spend the the majority of our time on that one. Who he came to be. I said the passage was weird, and one of the oddities of the passage is, is when you realize what it actually says, the question that probably should sort of form in your mind is, why so much wine? (laughs) Some of you are like, what's what's the problem? What's the question? What's the, you know. (laughs) Why so much wine? But he actually tells us in the passage how much wine Jesus made. There are these massive, massive jars that they say, that's used for ceremonial washing, and it says how much there is. So here's, it's 150 gallons of wine. I tried to conceptualize how much this is. Um, I, I know how big a bathtub is, um, so I looked up average size of a bathtub. Depending on the size of your bathtub, this is three full bathtubs overflowing with wine. Next slide. 20 square feet of wine. I thought that, you know, I usually have a visual aid, and I thought, like, how could I do this without getting in trouble? Um, And so I I thought that the drum enclosure looks kind of like um, a terrarium, which 
fits a lot of my feelings about drummers, but, um, but I thought, like, I could, I'm just kidding. I thought I could put a line on, like, how full the drum enclosure would be to, to give you a sense of, like, how much wine. And then here's the last one. 757 bottles. Why does, this is over the top in terms of how much wine you would need at this stage of a wedding party. Because it says that this, this is toward the end. They've already had their fill. And he shows up. You, gotta picture, you picture him. Like maybe you show up with you know, a, a bottle of wine or sparkling grape juice or whatever for a party. But you don't show up with a U-Haul with 757. <laughs> Why so much wine? And I don't think, FYI, it's that Jesus is really encouraging drunken debauchery right? Spoiler alert, I don't think that's the takeaway from this message, but I need to answer why, and so I want to answer it by telling uh, a story. Next slide. This is a picture of us in our house, dimly lit, not professionally taken, and this is something we do every night. We, you know, read the bedtime story, and um, if, if you're a Christian, there's a sort of rule that one of the bedtime stories you have to read at some point is uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And if you don't, uh, they arrest you. And so uh, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know uh, it's this sort of fantasy world and, and there's this lion, Aslan, who is a, kind of a, an analogy or a depiction of Christ. And, and there are these children that, that run into the lion, Aslan. And the other night we were reading the story of Prince Caspian, which is one of those novels. And, and Aslan finally shows up in the story of Prince Caspian. They've been waiting and waiting for Aslan, and he finally shows up. And there is a massive, massive party when he shows up, and, and, and the trees begin to dance, and the creatures of the forest join in this, this raucous celebration. And I'm reading this to the kids, and then it says this. I'm going to read it. It's, it's not going to be on the screen, but it says this. A youth dressed only in fawn skin with vine leaves wreathed in his curly hair, shows up. His face would have been almost too pretty for a boy's if it had not looked so extremely wild. You felt, as Edmund said when he saw him a few days later, there's a chap who might do anything, absolutely anything. This, this guy shows up, and it's this guy right here. And Lewis tells us, his name is Bacchus, Bacchus. The Greek version of his name is Dionysius. And it, I, the kids don't know this. I'm just reading the story. And here comes Bacchus, and right, but, but I know who Bacchus is, right? Bacchus is the pagan god of wine and wild parties. <laughs> and I'm like, why did C.S. Lewis bring him to the party? <laughs> He's a pagan deity, right? And I went on the internet to sort of research this, and there are lots of people who are very unhappy about this. Um, some of them have their own websites with multicolored font, um, and and they were not happy. Uh, this is Lewis. He's a pagan. He's he's you know, he's ruining the gospel with pagan influences, and uh, he brings Bacchus to the party, but but Bacchus has been transformed, right? There's no mention of of sort of sexual immorality like would normally be associated with Bacchus. There's no mention of of debauchery or, or anything like that. Uh, he, he's been sort of transformed. And it says this, it goes on in the story. 
Aslan feasted the Narnians till long after the sunset had died away and the stars had come out. And the best thing about this feast was that there was not a breaking up or going away. But as the talk grew quieter and slower, one after another would begin to nod and finally drop off to sleep with feet towards the fire and good friends on either side. It's this beautiful party. There's community. There's affection. There's, there's mutual love. And then there's still this question, well, why did Bacchus show up? And I think one of the reasons that Lewis does this is he has this belief that although there are many things that the pagan religions get terribly and dangerously wrong, there are a few things that they get right. And the thing that Bacchus gets right is that when the divine shows up, there's a party. When God shows up, there is festival joy. That God is not a sort of cosmic killjoy. He is not sort of a heavenly hall monitor who's just like out to sort of yell at you and, and pounce on any, he, he's not the sort of, you know, heavenly equivalent of Ned Flanders, who's, who's just sort of this dour, sour figure. Where God shows up, there is joy. And so Lewis transforms this, this pagan god of wild parties, and he puts it in the story. And some people obviously are not happy, but I'll tell you where he gets the idea. He gets the idea from John chapter 2. Because what Jesus is doing in John chapter 2 is saying, you know those old Dionysian tales? Kids play. Child's play. I am the Lord of the feast, not Bacchus. I am the giver of joy. I am the true master of the banquet, the life of the party. And when I show up, the rivers run with wine. I am the bringer. Of joy. So who did he come to be? He came to be lots of things. But one of the things he comes to be, Jesus Christ, when he comes to earth or when he comes into your life, he comes to be the bringer of joy, the life of the party, the Lord of the feast. And this is crucial because maybe the number one reason why people reject the gospel, they reject Christianity, is they say something like this, well, I want to have fun, right? I want to enjoy life. And I don't want to just, you know, sort of be, you know, grit your teeth and endure for 80 years and then you get to go to heaven. I want to enjoy life now. And Jesus comes, he says explicitly, I came that you might have life and have it full and overflowing. And he demonstrates that through a sign. And the sign is, this incredible excess of wine. I came to be the true master of the banquet. And you say, I, I don't know, I think it's a little bit weird, Josh. I mean, is, is that biblically true? Is it, is it true? Psalm 16 says this in the Old Testament, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, O Lord, are pleasures forevermore. The one I just quoted in the same gospel, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal and kill. I've come that you might have life and have it full and overflowing. I am the bringer 
of joy. And there are reasons to reject me, but a lack of joy isn't one of them. There are reasons why the call of Jesus is difficult. But the the idea that he wants to ruin your joy isn't, isn't one of them. So is it true biblically? Yes. Maybe the more difficult question is, is it true in my own experience that Jesus comes to bring festival joy, to bring the fullest possible life? Is it true in my experience? And most of us would attest to this, that um, there are sinful behaviors that feel really good for a season. Uh, Whether we're talking about sexual immorality, whether we're talking like that little thrill you get when you engage in gossip, or, or whether we're talking about just the pursuit and the just reveling in the things, the commodification and consumerism that, that afflict us in many cases. There are all sorts of sinful behaviors that feel like joy for a season. And, but at the end of the day, what, what we discover is they actually rob us of our joy. They actually steal the fullest possible life from us when we engage in them. The the great Danish philosopher was a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. He lived in the the, um, 19th century, and he was sort of like the 19th century John Mayer or uh, Brad Pitt. uh, He was a party guy, and he was kind of a celebrity. He was handsome. And he writes this about his life. Again, it won't be on the screen, but this is, this is what he says. I've just now come from a party where I was its life and soul. So he's not humble, but wit streamed from my lips. Everyone laughed and admired me, but I went away. Yes, and the dash should be as long as the radius of the earth's orbit. And he writes this huge dash. And then he says, and I wanted to shoot myself. He says, I I went to this party where everybody loved me. Everybody was flocking around me. I was just on my game. And I came home and he said, the dash should be as long as the earth's orbit. And I wanted to shoot myself. He says, there wasn't joy there. There was pleasure. but There wasn't joy. Jesus comes to be the bringer of joy. A fuller Life And so he illustrates it with this sign of just excess in, in the turning of water into wine. The pursuit of God. Maybe you want to write this down. The pursuit of God, and I would say the pursuit of holiness, is simultaneously the pursuit of joy. The pursuit of God and the pursuit of holiness is simultaneously a pursuit of joy because that's who Jesus came to be. He came to be the true master of the banquet, the true Lord of the feast. That's who he is. Who he came to be. Secondly, what he came to give. The first weird thing in the passage is why so much wine? The second weird thing in the passage to me is the way that Jesus treats his mom. <laughs> There's this exchange. Like, why, I read this with students. Like, why is he so mean to his mom, right? 
I don't picture Jesus doing that, you know. And so we, we read this. We'll read it again in verses 3 and 4. We'll, we'll just go through it. It says this. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Seems like a reasonable observation. Uh, and he says this, woman, why do you involve me? Uh, the Greek word is guni, which sounds sort of like even more offensive, calling a woman a guni. But it, it's not quite as offensive as it sounds in the English. But it is kind of a gentle rebuff or rebuke. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And then it just gets weirder because it sounds like he has just completely shut her down. I'm not going to do anything about the wine. Leave me alone, mom. And, and then she acts like he's just given her some like, little hint that he's going to do it. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. It's like, I feel like we're missing something. Like it's lost in translation or uh, what, what's going on with his mom? And one of the things that stands out, thankfully the new edition of the NIV has actually corrected this because it's the proper translation. He does not say, as some translations used to say, my time has not yet come. It's not that Greek word. It's not kairos. It's not chronos. It's a different word. He says, my hour has not yet come. And in every single instance in John's gospel, when that word is used, every single one, it is always and everywhere a reference to his hour of suffering. It is a reference to the cross. If you read the gospels and you see Jesus' fear as he approaches his hour, right? It is always a reference to his suffering. It's always a reference to his cross. What is he talking about? He's not talking about, I'm not going to make wine. Because he immediately turns around and does it. So either Jesus is a liar, or he's talking about something else when he says, my hour has not yet come. And one of the best sermons I've ever heard on this, I need to give credit to my sources, is one by a guy named Tim Keller. It's called Lord of the Wine. And he says this, I think Jesus is doing exactly what so many of us do when we go to a wedding. Specifically, what someone who is not yet married but wants to be does when they go to a wedding. What do you do? You see the bride coming in. You see her dress. You see the, the colors that they've chosen, right? Especially for the ladies who are thinking about like... They, they, they start to think, well, oh, I would not have worn that dress. It's not flattering. <laughs> I would not have chosen those colors, right? Uh, camo and hunter orange was a poor choice. Right? <laughs> what do you do when you go to a wedding, especially if you're not married? You begin to think about, you begin to dream about, you begin to contemplate your wedding. I wonder who I'm going to marry. I wonder what that's going to be like. Keller says, Jesus in this moment, his mind, he's in the party, but his mind is a million miles away. And in the moment, he is contemplating what it is going to take for him to provide wine for his wedding. And what it's going to take is him passing through the torture of his hour. And that's why he says, my hour has not yet come. He is not thinking about this wedding. He's thinking about the wedding 
to end all weddings. And what he's going to have to go through is the cross. What did he come to give? Mark says this. He says, at one point it says, Jesus, why do your disciples fast? And he responds, do the friends of the bridegroom fast? And the bridegroom is with them? No, they, they party. John's gospel, this same gospel, John the Baptist says this about Jesus, the bride is for the bridegroom. Jesus is, Jesus is the bridegroom. It's interesting in this passage, some scholars say that it was the bridegroom's job to provide the wine. And so he's at a wedding with a lousy bridegroom. <laughs> and he has come to be the true bridegroom to give true wine for the wedding to end all weddings. Isaiah 25, this is the crucial passage you have to understand if you want to understand John 2. It says this, on this mountain, Isaiah prophesies, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples and a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and he repeats, the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. That's quoted again at the very end of the Bible when Jesus returns. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is why it's a sign. This is why he starts with water into wine. It's not just a party trick. It is a picture of what he came to give. He came to give his blood as our wine. That's what he came to give. He came to give his blood as our wine. He came to be the true and better bridegroom. Not just the true and better Bacchus. The bridegroom. The one that brings festival joy. That conquers death forever. As Isaiah says, on, on this mountain he will conquer death forever. It's not just about joy in this life. Although Christ brings that. It's about eternal joy in the life to come. And every time we take communion, it's like we get this little foretaste of what's coming. The wedding to end all weddings is coming. He came to give his blood as our wine to set us free, to forgive us, to be the true bridegroom. Last question. How do we receive it? How do we receive that gift that he's come to give? I think maybe the simplest way you can say it is this, by admitting that you're out. That's what, that's what happens at the party. We are out of wine. We cannot provide what we need, what we were supposed to provide. We're out. By admitting that you're out, and putting all your trust in him. That's what Mary does. She goes to Jesus. She remembers the angels. She knows who he is. And she knows he's the only one that can do something about this level of outness. And even when he seems to rebuff her, she still trusts. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. 
she trusts even though they're out and even though he seems to sort of like push back uh, against her request. That's what we do. We have to admit that we're out and we have to put our trust in him. What are you out of right now? What are you out of uh, in your life? Uh, th- this wine, in the, in the, it's a story, and in so many stories in John, it's a symbol, it's a sign. What are you out of? Maybe you're out of answers, a particular dilemma or struggle that you are facing, and you're like, God, I'm out. I don't have any answers. I don't have any solution for this. Maybe you're out of hope in a particular area. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Even the mention of this wedding feast is in some ways uh, painful. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe you're just like, I'm kind of out of joy. And you need to pray that prayer that appears in the scriptures, Lord, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. I don't want to just sort of eke my way through life. I want to encounter you as the Lord of the feast and the bringer of festival joy. Maybe, maybe you're out right now because you need to change your view of Jesus. You need a different view of Jesus, a better view of Jesus. That he's not just this, this cosmic killjoy and this one who's just looming over you ready to strike and condemn, but he is the one who gets invited to parties He is the one that sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors flock to. Even though he's the embodiment of perfect holiness, he is the one whom people who are not at all holy want to be around. You need that Jesus. Not the one we've made over in our own image. We don't need the blonde-haired, blue-eyed American Jesus. We don't need the cosmic Ned Flanders Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus, the bringer of life and joy. So what are you out of? In what way do you need to encounter Jesus like the servants in this passage? It's stunning to me that the servants are the ones that know what happened. Master the banquet's just blissfully ignorant, right? And the poor, the servants, know exactly who he is. We need that Jesus. We need to encounter who he is what he came to give, and then we need to receive him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this, this story. I, I confess, maybe my favorite in all of the Gospels, in all of its weirdness, and yet in all of its beauty, that you came that we might have life, that you are better than the false gods, the false hopes that we chase after, whether money or sex or power or possessions, that you're better. That in your right hand, as the psalmist said, there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures forevermore. May we see you for who you are. Thank you for giving your blood as our wine as the thing that connects us to God, though we are imperfect, though we are out. 
even more fully than this wedding feast ever was, Lord. We admit that we're out. Some of us are out of hope. Some of us are out of answers. I thank you, Lord, that you meet us when we are out. When we admit that we're out. And that you fill us. Overflowing. So, Lord, we do what Mary did. We put our trust in you, even though sometimes we don't understand your ways, even though sometimes your timing is different from our own. We thank you that you know better than we do and that you are the Lord of the feast, the giver of joy. And so we chase after you. In Christ's name, amen.